0: I'd invite the rest of you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. Our text is on page 1042. Luke chapter 21. Uh, For those of you just joining us this Sunday, if this is your first Sunday here, we're glad you're here. Uh, Our church is in a sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. We're slowly but surely working our way through it. And uh right now we're in a section of Luke where Jesus is teaching about the end times. Interesting stuff. And so this today is a second Sunday in a three part study on Jesus' teaching on the end times as we work our way almost near the end of Luke here. So uh today we're studying verses twenty to twenty uh to thirty three, rather. Let me just read the text and then we'll jump in. Jesus said in verse twenty, of Luke twenty one. When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out and let those in the country not enter the city. For this is the time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. There will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. When these things begin to take place, stand up and lift up your heads because your redemption is drawing near. He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. I tell you the truth, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. Well, I had a minor miracle happen in my life this week. Uh, if you know me, you'll know this is a miracle. I was uh, actually began unpacking my books in my office over at 23th Street, which was really amazing, uh, considering that I moved in in February, and I'm just unpacking them now, but That's sort of how I roll. So anyway, uh, as I was digging through my books, I I came across this book. And given that uh, we're studying the end times, I thought it was curious. I didn't even know I had this book. It's called Armageddon, Oil, and the Middle East Crisis. What the Bible says about the future of the Middle East and the end of Western civilization. And so, you know, the basic idea of this book is the the author uh, is looking at certain Bible prophecies and trying to line them up with modern day events especially in the middle east and so sort of using the bible as kind of a decoder ring for figuring out what things that are happening today correspond with prophecies in the scriptures and you know even though i don't ascribe to this particular author's theological system i still found the book interesting because you know who isn't interested to read about the signs of the end times you know i was looking at chapter 17 which gives a prophetic checklist so you can go down and check off, have certain things happened or not, according to this guy's little theological scheme. And, you know, I found myself reading it like, oh, I don't wonder if that's right. You know, I mean, come on, be honest now. Haven't you been in the supermarket checkout line, and there in front of you is the National Enquirer, or the Star, and it says like, you know, Bible prophecy is coming true today, the end of the world is at hand, and you know you wanted to at least look at it. I mean, there was a part of you that wanted to. Uh, and so, you know, we're intrigued. We're intrigued. When we start talking about signs of the end of the world. And here we have Jesus talking about the end. And today He addresses this issue of the signs. In fact, um, the disciples were interested in this too. Look back at chapter uh, 21, verse 5, which is how this whole discourse began. It says in Luke chapter 21, verse 5, some of His disciples were remarking about how the temple was adorned with beautiful stones and with gifts dedicated to God. But Jesus said, as for what you see here, the time will come when not one stone will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. And so Jesus uh, and His disciples are there at Jerusalem. They're looking at the beautiful temple. The disciples are ooing and awing, And Jesus says, hey, it's this whole thing's going down. And so that, of course, piques their interest, which is why they ask in verse 7, Teacher, they asked, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are about to take place? So the disciples have two questions. When is it going to happen? And what are the signs? And now remember, we mentioned this last Sunday, but it was sort of a common part of uh, Jewish apocalyptic and prophetic thinking in Jesus' day to see the the fall and and the removal of the temple as a sign of the Messiah in the end times. So when the disciples here are asking, uh, when is the temple going to go away and what are going to be the signs? It's very likely that they had in their minds, they were asking about the second coming and the kingdom of God and the Messiah. So they want to know, when is it going to happen and what are the signs? Last Sunday we looked at the wind, if you were here, you remember that. And we saw that basically what Jesus said about the wind is, it's going to be a little while. That there was going to be a delay between when Jesus spoke these words here in Luke and when the end finally came. That it wasn't going to happen all at once in the disciples' lifetime, but it was going to be an extended period during which, if you remember from last Sunday, there would be false teachers and wars. and persecution for Christians. So that's the when. The when is not yet. It's going to be a while. And as we've seen, it has been a while. But today we look at the what. What are the signs? And so today we want to shift gears and look at Jesus' teaching on that. And in fact, in verse 20, if you look at Luke chapter 21, verse 20, Jesus shifts from the when to the what. And now he wants to give the what. And what he's going to give are two things. Verses 20 to 24, Jesus is going to talk about the fall of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple which is what the disciples originally asked about. And then in verses 25 to 28, Jesus talks about not the fall of Jerusalem, but the fall of, well, the world. The judgment day, the second coming of Jesus. And he's going to give signs related to each of those. So that's what we're going to look at. The fall of Jerusalem and then the second coming and the judgment on the world. So let's look at Jerusalem first. He says in verse 20, When you see Jerusalem being surrounded by armies, you will know that its desolation is near. So you want a sign? How do you know Jer- Jerusalem's about to fall? When you see it, surrounded by armies. That's the sign. made me think of uh, the comedian Bill Engvold. Here's your sign. <laughs> you want a sign? Here it is. The, when you see the armies around Jerusalem, heads up, time to get out of the city. In fact, look what he says in verse 21. Then let those in who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those in the city get out. and Let those in the country not enter the city. Don't think that by being in Jerusalem you're going to fight off the armies, that God's going to miraculously deliver the city this time. Just get out, because that is when God is going to do it, the very next time you see armies around Jerusalem. Of course, that happened, uh, as we saw last Sunday, in 70 A.D. The armies of Rome came and surrounded Jerusalem and sacked it. Uh, And it's interesting, church historians, uh, ancient church historians like Hegesippius, tell us that there was actually a group of Christians in Jerusalem who because Jesus said this, and they saw the Roman armies coming, they actually left Jerusalem ahead of the armies. They crossed over the Jordan River, they uh, settled in a town called Pella, which was on the other side of uh, the Jordan River, and they waited out the storm because they said, hey, this must be what Jesus told us about. And so they actually followed the signs and and got out of uh, Jerusalem, which was kind of interesting. (coughs) And now why should the people get out of Jerusalem? Because it's going to be wiped out. Look at verse 22. This is the time of punishment in fulfillment of all that has been written. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land and wrath against this people. They will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And that is in fact, in essence, what happened to Jerusalem It was destroyed in 70 A.D. Actually, the problems began about four years earlier. 66 A.D. was the the major Jewish revolt in Palestine against Rome. The Jews finally had it. They were sick of it. They'd had a series of very corrupt, cruel uh, Roman governors over them. And so finally they said, that's it, we're revolting. And an army of Jewish zealots marched on Jerusalem. They conquered the city They slaughtered the Roman garrison that was there. And because of those events, this revolt just spread like a wildfire throughout Judea and Palestine. Jews rose up everywhere and and started fighting back against the Romans. Well, as you can imagine, Rome was not going to take this lying down. And so the next year, in uh, 67 AD, the Roman general Vespasian and his son Titus marched with about 80,000 troops. Four legions of Roman soldiers and auxiliary troops marched into Palestine. And they began to systematically put down the rebellion. Until finally, there's some events here, I won't go into detail, but around uh, 70 A.D., the spring of 70 A.D., they were set around Jerusalem, ready to take the final city where all the remaining rebels had fled into. In fact, uh, there's a historian, his name is Josephus. He, he was around at the time of these events. In fact, Josephus was captured in the, in the war by the Romans. He was at the siege of Jerusalem. So we, we know a lot about how Jerusalem fell because there was a guy who was actually there writing about the things that he saw. Uh, and, and Josephus tells us that there were perhaps a million people inside Jerusalem. Just everyone left came back into it. Could you imagine a little city like that packed with a million people behind the walls as the Roman army comes marching in? I mean, this is, this was terrifying. It was a horrifying thing. And so the Romans in uh, May of 70 A.D. began attacking Jerusalem. In uh, May of 70 A.D., they breached the northern walls, but then they got stopped at, at the next row of walls in Jerusalem. Couldn't get through. Got repelled by the Jewish defenders. And so, uh, the Roman general Titus at the time uh, said, "Hey, time to do a siege." And so he ordered a siege dike to be built around the entire city. Four-mile-long siege dike. Took him about three or four days to throw it up. And so the whole city then was under siege. He posted guards around the city so that no food could go in and nobody's getting out. And then, you know, what you do in a siege is you starve out the enemy. And so they just sat there and waited. And could you imagine a million people, hundreds of thousands of people in a city, no supplies, low food supplies. It was horrible. Josephus said conditions got so bad in the city that in order to survive, people had to resort to cannibalism that when people died, they had to eat the people who were dying just to stay alive in the city. That's how horrible it was. And finally, after they had waited them out, starved them out, the Romans break through uh, in late July of 70 A.D. By early August 70 A.D., they had taken the temple, burned the temple, slaughtered the people there. And they spent most of August and September just working their way through Jerusalem, killing, burning, looting. Uh, Josephus estimates that a million people were slaughtered that another 100,000 were then taken back to Rome as captives to become slaves. And after the Romans had burned the city, killed just about everybody, men, women, and children, destroyed this place, they then went about and, and spent the rest of the year, they camped there, and they spent the fall and the winter literally dismantling Jerusalem brick by brick. They just went around brick by brick, taking everything down, flattening and raising the city. And so Jesus says, verse 22, this will be a time of punishment. Verse 23, how dreadful it will be in those days. Verse 24, they will fall by the sword and will be taken as prisoners to all the nations. Jerusalem will be trampled on by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. And so that's how that happened. Right? So that, that was 70 A.D., the fall of Jerusalem. Jesus' words were fulfilled in a very graphic, horrific kind of way. But then here's where the text gets interesting. And this is where it gets hard to interpret. Remember last Sunday I said that this is one of the hardest passages to interpret in the New Testament, this whole section here. And I said we need to be charitable with each other and how different people interpret it because it's very hard to understand. Anytime you get into prophetic literature, you're into very difficult territory. Because you're looking ahead to things that haven't happened, and, and the prophets give you bits and pieces of what's going to happen. And, and so anyone who comes along and says, well, I'm going to tell you exactly how it's going to take place, it's like, eh, I don't know. I mean, so, so I think anytime you get into prophetic literature, you just have to be more cautious and charitable and leave room for different uh, understanding that it's hard to interpret. Here's an example of that. Because you go straight from the fall of Jerusalem in verses 20 to 24, And then in verses 20 to 25, you move right into the second coming of Jesus and the fall of the world, I guess you could say. From the destruction of Jerusalem to the destruction of the world at the Judgment Day. And and you'll notice that they just kind of flow one into the other. So they're connected somehow, and yet we know historically that after 70 A.D., Jesus didn't return. It wasn't the end of the world. And so they're connected in this text, and yet historically, temporally, they're separated. In in Matthew and Mark's Gospels, in their account of this, linguistically the the two are even more interconnected. It's even more difficult to figure out where the one ends and where the other begins. And so this is one of these places where scholars kind of scratch their heads and go, huh, so what was Jesus saying there? Because it seems like these events are connected, and yet historically, we know that one took place and one still hasn't. So how do they fit together? And some people say, well, maybe, maybe they fit together because the second coming of Jesus really did happen in some spiritual figurative sense way back in 70 A.D. And there's that one school of interpretation. But I don't know. It just doesn't sit well with me, especially in verse 28 where Jesus tells the people to stand up because your redemption is drawing near. But our redemption didn't come back then. So that seems kind of fuzzy. Another school of interpretation says, "Well, maybe the fall of Jerusalem described here is not the one that happened in 70 .AD. It's a future one that's going to happen." I mean, well, It seems unlikely because Jesus was telling his disciples, "Look, here are the signs about the fall of Jerusalem, so be paying attention. And so it seems strange if it would have fallen, have fulfilled that prophecy, but not be what Jesus was really talking about. So how do these things fit together? You see what I mean? This is tough, tough stuff to understand. Let me tell you what, the way I, I've come to understand this, and, you know, perhaps this is worth what you've paid for it, uh, this interpretation. <laughs> but, basically, I, I see these two events, the fall of Jerusalem and the second coming of judgment, connected in two ways. And I think they're, they're interrelated in two ways. First of all, I guess most basically, is that because Jesus was right in his prophecies about Jerusalem, we can have confidence in His prophecies about the second coming. In other words, the fall of Jerusalem, according to Christ's words, is a sign that Jesus really is the prophet of God, that He really does know what's going to happen, and that what He says is taking place. And so because one took place, we can have confidence about the second one. In fact, look at verse 33. Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. You can count on what Jesus says. Lots of stuff will fail you. Christ's words will not fail you. Christ's promises will not fail you. And so, so, so maybe th- that's one of the ways they're connected. The other way they're connected though, and I think this is a more important thing, is that I believe the destruction of Jerusalem and how horrible it was, was a prefigurement of the second coming judgment of the world. In other words, the fall of Jerusalem is like a typology. It's a foreshadowing. It's a picture ahead of time of what it's going to be like when Jesus returns. As, As the judgment fell upon Israel, so judgment is going to fall upon the whole world for rejecting Christ. As Jerusalem was destroyed, so the whole world will be destroyed. And so it's kind of like a little picture. You want to know what the final judgment's like? Go back and look at Jerusalem. That was a microcosm of what will happen to the whole cosmos when Christ returns. And so you see in verse 25, there will be signs in the sun, moon, and stars. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity at the roaring and tossing of the sea. Men will faint from terror, apprehensive of what is coming on the world, for the heavenly bodies will be shaken. And so that, that little horror that was the fall of Jerusalem for the people there is, is a little picture of how it's going to be when Christ returns and how great His judgment going to be. Remember, when Christ comes back, people, it's going to be a judgment. It's not like homecoming week at college. Like,
1: oh, Jesus is
0: back. Cool, hey, you want a burger? Come on over here, man. No, It's a judgment day. And and He's given us a picture of what it's going to be like. And so I think these events are are, are sort of repeated cycles, uh, typologies, uh, recurring themes that culminate in the final coming of Christ. And we sort of see this pattern in the Scriptures, that God does things similar to each other, over and over again, building up to the final culmination. Notice the parallels between the fall of Jerusalem description and the fall of the end of the world. Notice, for instance, that first of all, in both of them, people are freaking out. You see? That's a theme here. It's not really, in fact, that's what it says in Greek. People are freaking out. I'm just kidding. But uh, people, are, people are falling apart. Look at in verse 23. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. There will be great distress in the land. And so Jerusalem was filled with distress and lament and people losing their minds because it felt like the whole world was coming to an end as they looked out every morning to see the Roman troops stationed outside. Similarly, at the coming of the end, look at verse 25. On the earth, nations will be in anguish and perplexity. Verse 26, men will faint from terror. Just fall right over. It's a great word in Greek, faint from terror. It it literally means to stop breathing and and just sort of fall over. So it may be that people die. They're so scared they die. It's going to be so horrible that people are going to be like, ah, what's happening? The world's coming apart. And so there's a similarity between the two. Notice, uh, secondly, that in both cases, it's a judgment of God that these things aren't random or just, you know, crazy cosmic events. It's a judgment of God taking place. Look at verse 22. This is a time of punishment and fulfillment of all that has been written. And so Jerusalem is going to fall not because it made a poor political decision, but because God is finally bringing His judgment on Jerusalem for rejecting the Messiah. And in a similar way, God is going to bring His judgment on the whole world because of its rejection of Christ. God... Judge Jerusalem, and someday he's going to judge Boston, New York, New Delhi, Hong Kong, Moscow, North America, Western Europe, Asia, Africa. The judgment of God will come upon all of the earth for its rejection of his Savior. And we see that judgment down in verses 25. See the language there? Signs in the sun, moon, and stars. People in anguish, tossing roaring of the sea. Verse 26, heavenly bodies shaken. For what it's worth, that's all Old Testament imagery of judgment. And so Jesus is just using Old Testament images uh, that signify judgment and he's pulling them forward to describe his second coming. Except I think that when he comes again, it won't just be images. It'll be the literal unraveling of the natural order. And so it's going to be a judgment day. Again, this is not homecoming week. This is... The judgment as Christ returns. And then a third way they're the same is that in both texts there are signs. And that's the emphasis here. In the case of Jerusalem, the sign was the armies surrounding Jerusalem. And so the Christians who were there said, oh, there's the sign. We're out of here. And they, were, they escaped the judgment that fell on Jerusalem. In the same way there are going to be signs around us. And what are the signs when Christ returns? How do you know? Because it'll seem like the, the very natural order itself is coming unraveled. What is happening to the universe? What's taking place? You'll know it's the end of the world when it looks like the world's coming to an end. You'll, you'll know. But notice how Christians respond differently. When these things begin to take place, what are we supposed to do as Christians? I love this. Stand up, lift up your heads. Because your redemption is drawing near. And so while the rest of the world is running around, ah, what's happening? And people are glued to their TVs because they're freaking out. Christians are going to be in the streets. (laughs) We're ready. Yes, it's happening. Finally. Rejoicing that it's finally come. Verse 29, He told them this parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourselves and know that summer is near. Fitting for us this morning, huh? I was driving down Main Street. I was like, "What is? Oh, the leaves are out. They, I guess they popped out last night or something. I'm finally seeing the leaves. So there you go. When you drive home today, perfect timing, right? Look at those leaves. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Last Sunday, the word was, "Kingdom of God's not going to be here for a while. It's going to be a delay. This Sunday, Jesus says, when you see the world around us just falling apart and you think this is the end of the world, that's when you don't go cry and hide under a blanket. If you're a Christian, you go stand outside. We're going to be dancing in the streets. We're going to be lifting up our heads and standing confidently, watching the world dissolve and say, Christ is coming back. This is the day of our redemption. And so we have confidence as Christians. Now, by the way, you know, I I don't talk a lot about end-time stuff. Any of you who've been here and know, have heard my preaching over the years, you know I'm not one of those preachers who just gets all into interpreting the signs and it gets into end-time stuff. I I stay focused on the gospel, on the main things, the essentials of the faith. But since we are talking about the end times, you know, maybe we could talk just a little bit about it. One of the uh, the questions Christians often have about the end times is, is this whole idea of the rapture. Have you heard of this concept? It's, it's this idea that that uh, that before the end, God is going to. It's that's called the secret rapture of the church. He's going to take out the Christians, right? In fact, you've heard of the left behind books. That's the idea. Some people get taken out. Some people are left behind. And, and so is this idea that people. And in fact, it's this idea that like you'll be driving down the street and there'll be a car in front of you that'll suddenly go off in a ditch because the driver was like, you know. Beamed out, or, or however it's going to happen. In fact, I've even seen a bumper sticker. In case of rapture, warning, this car will be unmanned. You know, and I just like, okay. <laughs> and, and in fact, you know, a, a lot of people believe that. Uh, you know, my own take on it is I don't believe in the rapture. I don't believe that it's in the scriptures. Because every time I look in the scriptures and see the second coming, there's nothing secret about it, folks. It's loud. It's big, everyone sees it, everyone's freaking out, there are signs that everybody sees. There's nothing, it's not any some secret little thing that happens and everyone wondered what happened. Whenever I see Christ coming back in the scriptures, there's the shout of the archangel, there's the return of Christ, it's the final day. And so I just don't find that in scriptures. Not to mention the fact that this idea of a secret rapture, do you know it wasn't even taught in the church until about 150 years ago? No one had ever heard of it. It was a new doctrine that was been invented. The main teaching of the church is that Christians go through suffering. That's been the church's position, at least for most of its history. Jesus was not raptured right before they nailed him to the cross. He went to the cross. And then he tells us to pick up our crosses and follow him. And so why do we think that we're going to escape suffering for our Savior and all the things that are going to come upon the world? Furthermore, if there's a secret rapture, I just don't know how these words make any sense. Because they seem like Jesus is telling Christians to look for signs of when He's going to come and it's going to be very visible, world-shaking kinds of signs. So anyway, that's my take. Like I said, it's worth what you paid for it. And uh, you can disagree on that issue. I know Christians do. And and that's why I don't make a big deal about my own beliefs on things like that because I don't think it's a central issue. But I do hope that whatever you believe about the rapture or lack of rapture or whether or not you read the Left Behind series or not, I hope that all of us as Christians can link arms, can join together and together affirm and celebrate verse 27, which is the chewy, gooey, yummy, nougaty center of this text. This is what I hope we can all affirm at verse 27. At that time they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. That's what I'm excited about. I'm excited to see Jesus. And not just see Him for me personally. You know, of course I want to see my Savior. The man, I want the whole world to see Him. I'm so weary of how Jesus gets dissed in our world. I'm so weary of of people saying, well, he was a a rabbi, but he wasn't the son of God. I'm so weary of how his glory is diminished. I'm so sick of seeing PBS specials or ABC specials where they talk about Jesus. They do this every year around Easter. And they bring on all these scholars who who say, well, of course it's been disproven that, you know, Jesus actually rose from the dead. I mean, we know that didn't happen. And it just makes me want to vomit, you know. And I'm sick of the morality of Jesus being trampled on in our culture. And I'm sick of the Bible being looked down upon. And I just stand up on it. You know, we have to take it because that's what Jesus calls us to do to suffer for Him. But there's another part of me that says, Jesus, when are You going to come back? So that everyone will know that You are Son of God, Savior, Risen Lord. And I can't convince people of that. That's only something that the Holy Spirit can show them. Or when Jesus comes back, all eyes will see and so I read this verse and I'm like yes I'm waiting for my Savior to be vindicated for my Lord and Master to assume his rightful place over all the nations of the earth and so we will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud on that great day in fact that language about the Son of Man coming on the cloud that actually comes out of uh, the Old Testament It's from the book of Daniel. We haven't done a lot of back and forth this morning in the Old Testament, but I would like to look at this. Put a bookmark here in Luke 21. Go back to Daniel chapter 7. Daniel chapter 7. It's on page 882 if you're using a pew Bible. Here's where the whole Son of Man coming on the clouds thing comes from. Just by way of context. Daniel 7 is a dream that Daniel the prophet had about five and a half centuries before Jesus. And Daniel 7 is a dream about the end times. And look how his end time dream ends in chapter 7, verse 13. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me, here we go, here's the language, was one like a Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Here's the Son of Man. He comes on the clouds. Interesting, by the way, who in the Old Testament is the cloud rider? God. And yet here we have the Son of Man as cloud rider. That's weird. And notice also that it says in verse 14 that all peoples, nations, and men of every language worshipped Him. You know Who's worshipped in the Bible? God alone. And yet here the Son of Man is worshipped. So who could this be? A human Son of Man who is also the cloud rider whom all people worship. Who could that possibly be? Jesus says you're going to see. Because when that day comes, He's going to come riding on the clouds full of glory. And so here's the question I want to leave you with as I wrap it up here. Are you ready for that day? Are you ready? Are you prepared to see Jesus? Are you ready for the day when the Son of Man will come in power and great glory and the world will fall before Him? Are you ready for that day? Because remember, it's a judgment day. It's not a homecoming. It's a judgment day. Are we ready for the judgment day? Are you ready to stand before Jesus as your judge and see Him? Can you stand before Him? Do you know that? Or not? Um, Because if we're all honest and and we look at our lives, none of us can say that based upon our track record that we deserve to stand before Jesus. I certainly don't. I look at my track record. Nope. (laughs) I have not loved God. I have not loved my neighbor. My life is so full of times I have broken God's commandments, whether in thought, word, deed, attitude. And so I couldn't stand before my Savior. None of us can. The Bible says there's none righteous. No, not one. But the good news of the Bible, and this is the great part of the Bible, the Gospel, the good news, is that there's a way of escape from the Judgment Day. Just as there was a small group of Christians who got out of Jerusalem right before it fell. So there is a, a way of escape from the coming judgment. And of course, ironically, the way of escape is through Jesus. And so Jesus, who is the coming judge, is also the Savior. And so it presents us with a choice. All of us are going to have to face Jesus someday. The question is will you face Him as Savior or will you face Him as judge? Will you embrace Him as the one who died for you on the cross? Or will you face Him as the Judge at the coming Judgment Day? Which one will it be? Because Christ died on the cross for our sins. In fact, when Jesus died on the cross, what happened? Sky turned black. Earth shook. It was a Judgment Day. And so my sins are going to be judged. It's either will they be judged on Christ on the cross for my, for my sins or will I take it myself in hell forever? And so which one will it be? How will you face Christ? Have you embraced Him as your Savior? You say, oh, I couldn't, man. I have so much baggage. I have so much garbage in my life. I have so many issues. I'm so imperfect. It doesn't matter. We're not saved by cleaning up our record. We're saved by simply coming to Jesus and saying, I am a sinful man. I am a foul and sinful woman. Save me, Jesus. Forgive me. And He will. Because someday we all have to face Him. Oh, it made me think of this uh, C.S. Lewis book, The Last Battle. Some of you have seen the Chronicles of Narnia, read the Chronicles of Narnia book. Well, The Last Battle is the seventh book in the series. It's the final one. It's about the end of the world coming to Narnia. And there's a great story there when all of the, the creatures of Narnia have to stand before Aslan, the lion. And You know, Aslan represents Jesus in the story. And so they stand before Aslan, and there's this he's standing in this doorway. And the doorway is kind of there in the middle of the, the world. And, and on the other side of the doorway is... The the new heavens and the new earth. On this side of the doorway is judgment. And everyone has to stand before Aslan and face him. And it says, As they, the animals, came right up to Aslan, one one or other of two things happened to each of them. They all looked straight in his face. I don't think they had any choice about that. And when some looked, the expression of their faces changed terribly. It was fear and hatred. And all the creatures who looked at Aslan in that way swerved to their right, his left, and disappeared into his huge black shadow which streamed away to the left of the doorway. The children never saw them again. I don't know what became of them. But the others looked in the face of Aslan and loved him. And though some of them were very frightened at the same time. And all these came in at the door. In on Aslan's right. And so on that day, will you look at Jesus in fear and hatred, or will you look at him with love? Is he your Savior, or is he just going to be your judge? Come to Christ. Put your faith in Christ. You've tried everything else, it ain't working. (laughs) God has a way of escape, His way of escape is the Savior. Try God's way. Put your faith in Christ and turn from yourself and embrace Him. Let's pray. Oh Lord Jesus, we love You. Thank You that You're coming back. Thank You that this world is not going to go on forever in all of its wickedness and evil, but that someday, Lord, You are going to come and establish Your kingdom. And Lord Jesus, I thank You that You didn't let me continue to go on in my wickedness and rebellion, but that You sent Jesus to die for me and to save me. We thank You today for the power of the Holy Spirit who's enabling us to change one bit at a time as we're more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. Thank You, God, that You are in the business of taking ruined, messed up, broken sinners and turning them into forgiven, beloved Christians, followers of Jesus who have hope, hope of redemption. And so, Lord, I pray that as we come to the communion table now to celebrate uh, Jesus' death for us, that, that we would tie these events together, that we would see His death in the past, His resurrection, and we'll look to the future of the second coming, and that we will celebrate as people who stand between those two great events, looking back with gratitude and looking forward with hope. And I pray this in Your name, Jesus. Amen. As we come to the communion table now, we come to celebrate the death of Jesus for us. This bread symbolizes His body. This cup symbolizes His blood that was shed. And uh, you're welcome to eat at the communion table today if if you're a follower of Christ, if that's where you're at in your own life. If that's not where you're at, we invite you just to participate by observing. Um, And I'd like to ask Bob Ells to come now. Bob Ells is one of our elders, and he is going to lead us uh, in the Lord's table. Let me give you my microphone, Bob.
2: My name is Bob Ells. I am an elder here at South Shore Baptist Church, and it is my privilege to lead us in celebrating uh, the Lord's Supper this morning. As I think about the Lord's Supper, we, we think of that Last Supper when the disciples were gathered there with Jesus in the upper room, just the, the few of them there, and, uh, and I take encouragement as I observe them. You see, these guys were with Jesus for three years pretty much nonstop. And, uh, and still, they had a hard time getting it. They, they, they just didn't get it. And uh, I feel the same way. I've been walking with the Lord for some time, and I get it right sometimes, and I don't get it so right other times. But God is faithful, and he loves us, and he shows us the way. And, uh, and he also wants us to remember the significance of what he did in dying for us, and that's why we celebrate the Lord's Supper this morning. Uh, in a way of remembering what He has done for us, it's just so powerful. Um, as I as I think about it, also, um, you know, those of us who are believers uh, are able to remember this and 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 understand the significance of what Jesus Christ did for us. But my question to you this morning is: Are you going to, when you see Jesus Christ, when you uh, go home to be with, uh, when you die, or when He returns, are you going to be yes? Or are you going to be bowed down low because you have made a choice and your choice is no? Um, It's a very sobering thought, and I encourage you to think about that this morning as we move into uh, sharing in the communion service this morning. I'm going to be reading from uh, uh, the passage in 1 Corinthians, and it goes like this. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night that he was betrayed, took bread And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This uh, matzo bread is a symbol of God's body, broken for us. I invite the elders to come and join me here at the communion table. Chuck Hicks, would you be kind enough to offer a prayer for the bread, please? Let
3: us pray. Eternal Father, as we come before this table this morning, we are indeed reminded that we are weak and sinful people. But you are a God of mercy, a God who loves us with an infinite and everlasting love, a God whose sent his only begotten son to suffer and die to pay our sin debt. And so, Father, we will be forever grateful to you for this sacrifice you made for us. And we know that we can never repay you, but our prayer is that we will be living sacrifices, that you will use our lives, Father, to transform this world into the kind of world you desire, a world of peace and love and brotherhood and that you'll use us as your instruments to carry the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ to the whole world. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.
2: I encourage you as the elders are passing out the elements this morning to take this time to spend some time with the Lord and to uh, talk with him about what's on your heart. If you uh, you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, then uh, perhaps there's some business that you need to do. And if you don't, then there certainly is. you. Mm-hmm. Christ's body was broken for us. Let's eat this together. In the same way, after supper... He took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Elders, would you come again, please? John Norton, would you uh, ask God's blessing on the cup, please? Let us pray. Father, you have sacrificed your one and only son uh, for our sins, and his blood has been shed so that we could be made clean. And, Father, we just want to express our thanksgiving and our gratefulness and our love to you as we share together in this. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name.
1: Thank you.